0: Blast the right, the right. Blast the right, the right. Blast. <laughs> Greetings. This is podcast number thirty-four of Blast the Right. I'm Jack Clark from therationalradical.com www.therationalradical.com Today we have one big subject, something that, in right-winger eyes, is the scariest thing in the world. Let's get right into it. Back in podcast number 7, we discussed the concept of a living wage. That is, raising the minimum wage, preferably nationwide on the federal level, to an amount that lifts a family of three above the poverty line. I titled that piece, Scare a Right-Winger to Death, Advocate Reducing Poverty by Raising the Minimum Wage to a Living Wage. Today, I want to talk about another social justice measure, a tax on wealth. Even more than living wage laws, the concept of a wealth tax gives right-wingers apoplexy. Let's first establish why would such a tax be necessary. In Japan, CEOs get paid 10 times the wage of an average worker. In the United States in 1980, CEOs got paid 40 times the wages of an average worker. Not good, But get a load of this. The present figure is anywhere from 300 to 500 times, depending on the exact recent year and measuring tool used. US CEOs now get paid 300 to 500 times the average worker's wage. Over time, unequal income levels result in even worse unequal and unjust wealth distribution. The latest figures available for 2001 show that the richest 10% of Americans own 70% of all the wealth. That means 90% of the population has to depend on only 30% of the wealth. Let's look at this in a perhaps more graphic way. Assume the total wealth of the United States is $100, and the total population is 100 people. If that $100 of wealth was held by these 100 people in the same percentages that actual U.S. wealth is held by Americans, one guy would have $33. This guy is the super wealthy. Four guys would have six dollars each. These guys are the plain old wealthy. Five more guys would have about two and a half bucks each. They're the comfortable. These 10 guys out of 100 control 70 out of 100 dollars of wealth. What about the rest of the people? Forty guys would have $0.70 each, the lower middle class, the working class. They can scrape by, maybe, if they don't get sick, for example, and need medical care. And finally, fifty guys would have $0.05 5 each. Many of these are the working poor and those unable to work. That one guy with $33 just has too much. And that's why 50 guys only have five and a half cents each. After the top 10% award themselves 70% of the nation's wealth, there's just not enough left for those 50 guys to make it. I have nothing against people becoming wealthy as long as there's enough left for the rest of the people to survive in a minimally decent way. But right now, there's not, and there needs to be some leveling mechanism. One good leveling mechanism is a tax on wealth. Much of the following information about a wealth tax is from an article by Gar Alperovitz, Professor of Political Economy at the University of Maryland. The article is entitled, Taxing Wealth at the Very Top, Time for a Property Tax on All Forms of Property. Starting now, state by state. Let's go over some logical questions about a wealth tax and the answers to them. Does anyone have a wealth tax? Tax now? Yes! Many of the advanced industrial countries in Europe tax wealth, not only income but wealth as well. In the United States right now, the only state with a wealth tax is Florida. They call it an intangibles tax there. Some counties in Kansas and Pennsylvania also have a wealth tax. It's interesting to note that in the past, several U.S. states did have a wealth tax. Among them, Connecticut, Georgia, Kentucky, Michigan, North Carolina, Ohio, and West Virginia. What form would a wealth tax take? In Europe, they have several different arrangements. Most of them have a tax rate of between 1 and 2.5 percent, and they only tax the top groups. Those with much less wealth are exempt. Various proposals for a U.S. wealth tax have been made. Bruce Ackerman and Ann Alstott, Yale professors, have set the rate at 2 percent. A Hofstra law professor, Leon Friedman, has suggested a one percent tax on wealth of the top one percent. And, quote, Kevin Phillips and Jeff Gates have also urged that wealth taxation be put on the American agenda. Robert Cutner adds that a wealth tax is, by definition, the most progressive way to raise revenue since it hits only the pinnacle of the income distribution. Even Donald Trump, a few years ago, proposed a one-time net worth tax of 14.25% on Americans with more than $10 million in assets, close quote. If we did have a wealth tax, how much money could be raised? Well, total U.S. wealth in private hands is $43 trillion. 70% of that is $30 trillion. A mere 1% wealth tax on the richest 10% of Americans would yield $300 billion a year. At 2.5%, you'd get $750 billion a year. No more homelessness? everyone with first-class medical care, and more such dream-come-true achievements. But forget about the top 10%. Let's just look at the top 1%. Don't bother 99% of all Americans. The top 1% have 32.7% of all U.S. wealth. In other words, $14 trillion dollars. So, taxing the top 1% only 1% would yield $140 billion a year. A 2.5% tax would produce $350 billion a year. Still quite enough to achieve true morality and justice in our socioeconomic lives. What about political strategy? Could this ever become reality? Quote, The real question is how to put the issue on the political map and then move it forward step by step over time. The obvious way to do so is to begin at the state level and lay groundwork state by state in a manner that both helps solve state fiscal problems and simultaneously establishes precedents for future national action. There are reasons to believe that taxes which sharply delineate between the vast majority and privileged elites at the very top are becoming increasingly viable politically, especially given the fiscal problems facing many states. Close quote. Alperovitz then cites four recent fascinating examples. 1. California 2004 ballot measure. The voters there overwhelmingly approved an increase in taxes for people making more than one million dollars. The proceeds were earmarked for mental health programs. 2. New Jersey legislation. Here, taxes were increased for those making more than $500,000 a year. The money was to be used to reduce property taxes on the middle class and the poor. 3. Connecticut, a recent poll. 77% of voters, including 63% of Republicans, were in favor of a tax on those making more than $1 million a year. And finally, four, California, a 2006 proposed initiative. A tax would be imposed on the top 1%, defined as individuals making more than $400,000 and couples making more than $800,000. The money collected would be used to pay for preschool for all four-year-olds. Al Peravitz writes, quote, state wealth taxes which also target those at the very top and could benefit up to 97 to 99% of the population simply take this populist trajectory to the next logical stage they could be put forward as tax proposals on their own or in a manner which linked the revenue produced to other important programs close quote great phrase isn't it populist trajectory at this point you may be thinking this stuff jack is talking about is radical well not really first consider this from professor alperovitz quote we rarely pause to reflect on the fact that for the most part The only wealth we tax directly in America is real property, in the main home ownership, the wealth holding that is common to the vast majority. Meanwhile, we do not tax stocks and bonds directly. One way to think about wealth taxes is that they are simply a property tax applied to all forms of property, including the kind of property which is heavily concentrated among the elites, close quote. Second, the right has moved the political discourse so far to the right, that's why what I'm saying seems radical. It seems radical in the rights universe of what passes for ideas. This is not how it always was in this nation. We all really need to be shocked out of our present right-wing installed mindset. Towards that end, listen to what an acknowledged mere liberal, not a commie or a socialist or any kind of radical, said 70 years ago. He wasn't some obscure left-wing congressman from a college town. This liberal happened to be President of the United States at the time. In fact, this liberal was elected President of the United States four times. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was speaking to the 1936 Democratic Convention. He was explaining how he viewed the then-present economic situation, which he said resulted from the Industrial Revolution and the economic changes it had wrought. Roosevelt proclaimed that while the 1776 revolution threw off political tyranny, there now was an economic tyranny, That must be vanquished. For clarity, I've rearranged the order of some of these excerpts. And when you listen, keep in mind at all times this was a President of the United States speaking.
1: An old English judge said once upon a time, Necessitous men are not free men. Liberty requires opportunity to make a living, a living decent according to the standard of the time, a living which gives man not only enough to live by, but something to live for. For too many of us, the political equality we once had won was meaningless in the face of economic inequality. A small group had concentrated into their own hands an almost complete control over other people's property, other people's money, other people's labor. Other people's lives. For too many of us. For too many of us throughout the land. Life was no longer free. Liberty no longer real. Men could no longer follow the pursuit of happiness.
0: Pretty strong stuff. Huh. Well, it gets even better. Listen on.
1: And so it was natural and perfectly human that the privileged princes of these new economic dynasties, thirsting for power, reached out for control over government itself. They created a new despotism and wrapped it wrapped it in the robes of legal sanction. In its service, new mercenaries sought to regiment the people, their labor, their property. And as a result, the average man once more confronts The problem that faced the Minuteman of 76.
0: Roosevelt likens the situation in 1936 to that facing the American revolutionaries of 1776. He then speaks of what the mid-20th century people of the United States did in response to their Minuteman situation
1: against economic tyranny such as this, the American citizen could only appeal to the organized power of government. We well remember that the collapse of 1929 showed up the despotism for what it was, and the election of 1932 was the people's mandate to end it, and under that mandate it is being ended. Today, today we stand committed to the proposition that freedom is no half-and-half affair. If the average citizen is guaranteed equal opportunity in the polling place, he must have equal opportunity in the marketplace.
0: Roosevelt also answers the right-wing argument that we still hear today whenever economic justice is brought up.
1: The Royalists I have spoken of, the Royalists of the Economic Order, have conceded that political freedom was the business of the government, but they have maintained that economic slavery was nobody's business. They granted that the government could protect the citizen in his right to vote but they denied that the government could do anything to protect the citizen in his right to work and his right to live. These economic royalists complain that we seek to overthrow the institutions of America. What they really complain of is that we seek to take away their power. Our allegiance and our allegiance to American institutions requires the overthrow of this kind of power. In vain, they seek to hide behind the flag and the Constitution. But in their blindness, they forget what the flag and the Constitution stand for. Now, now as always, for over a century and a half, the flag, the Constitution, stand against a dictatorship by mob rule and the overprivileged alike. And the flag and the Constitution stand for democracy, not tyranny, for freedom, not subjection.
0: Did you hear Roosevelt's language? Economic slavery, economic royalists. Dictatorship by the overprivileged. I like that term, overprivileged. Does it not exactly describe George W. Bush? Roosevelt is speaking on behalf of the 50 guys in my earlier example with five and a half cents each in wealth, the crumbs off the table of those whom Roosevelt is speaking against. The princes of the new economic dynasties. The guys who have $33. Roosevelt was elected president four times. The majority of Americans obviously liked what he was saying. A present-day speaker of truth, Barbara Ehrenreich, has said much the same thing using a different paradigm. In her book, Nickel and Dimed on Not Getting By in America, she wrote, When someone works for less than she can live on, when, for example, she goes hungry so that you can eat more cheaply and conveniently, then she has made a great sacrifice for you. She has made you a gift of some part of her abilities, her health, and her life. The working poor, as they are approvingly termed, are in fact the major philanthropists of our society. They neglect their own children, so that the children of others will be cared for. They live in substandard housing, so that other homes will be shiny and perfect. They endure privation, so that inflation will be low and stock prices high. To be a member of the working poor is to be an anonymous donor, a nameless benefactor to everyone else. Closed quote. So a wealth tax would be a way to help level the economic playing field and to allow us to pay back to the working poor the subsidy they have given the rest of us. Many right-wingers advocate a tax on consumption, a national sales tax. Well, if taxing consumption is intelligent and morally valid, why not taxing wealth? Why would that be any less intelligent and morally valid? So take heart, blast the right listeners. What was proclaimed before by FDR can be proclaimed again. What was accomplished before by FDR can be accomplished again. It won't happen overnight, but it will happen. Professor Alperovitz's populist trajectory may be real. Bush's plunging poll numbers... Only a 37% approval rate in Indiana, for goodness sake, combined with the worsening economic distress of increasing numbers of Americans, could well mean big changes on the way. Along these lines, I want to return to FDR one last time. Roosevelt truly gets to the moral-spiritual bottom line and strikes a heavy blow against the right-wing sin of not giving a damn about anyone else other than the rich.
1: Governments can err. Presidents do make mistakes. But the immortal Dante tells us that divine justice weighs the sins of the cold-blooded and the sins of the warm-hearted in different scales. Better the occasional faults of a government that lives in a spirit of charity than the consistent omissions of a government frozen in the ice of its own indifference.
0: Frozen in the ice of its own indifference. A perfect way to describe a right winger's heart. Or, as famed economist John Kenneth Galbraith put it, quote, the modern conservative is engaged in one of man's oldest exercises in moral philosophy. That is, the search for a superior moral justification for selfishness. Close quote. Yes, whatever you hear coming out of a right winger's mouth. Nothing other than selfishness and greed is the underlying motivation, the driving force. Play it again, Franklin.
1: Better the occasional fault of a government that lives in a spirit of charity than the consistent omissions of a government frozen in the ice of its own indifference
0: Well, that'll about wrap it up for today. If you liked what you heard, please tell a friend about Blast The Right. There's an easy one-click sign-up for iTunes on my podcast homepage, as well as a place where they can fill in their email address and be notified by email of each new podcast. Music Credits We will close the podcast with a bit of Catapult the Propaganda by Nise Music, N-I-S-E, music.com. Links to all the music I play on the Blast the Right podcast can be found on my music resources page, linked to off the main podcast homepage. Thanks to the Miller Center at the University of Virginia for the Roosevelt audio clips. Links to the Miller Center, as well as to all the data, statistics, and quotations I use on the podcast can be found on my data resources page, which is also linked to off the main podcast homepage. I love to get all your comments, so please email me by addresses rational at Adelphia.net. You can also call in and leave your comments for me to play on the podcast, just dial up 310 933 5891. If you're on Skype, you can Skype me at Jack from Blast the Right. So, until next time, I'll sign off and say I love you all, including all you right wing misguided souls. The kind of catapults of propaganda my line of work, you got to keep repeating things over and over and over again to kind of catapult the propaganda, catapult the propaganda.